0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: And I am Bill Newman.
2: And I am Buzz Eisenberg and Bill Newman. There is some news coming out of the University of Massachusetts. Our university has apparently a new chancellor. Uh, Javier Reyes is the interim chancellor at the University of Illinois in Chicago since July. And he is the one who's being recommended as the next chancellor at the flagship. Amherst campus for the University of Massachusetts. Uh, exciting.
1: And congratulations to the search committee and to the new chancellor. And their are very impressive uh, academic background and administrative background. A lot of challenges, of course, for UMass Amherst. I think that he is going to be received. I think the fact that he is the first Hispanic chancellor uh, for the flagship campus, and I think at the UMass, in the UMass system, I think is very exciting. I think more exciting is his background and his uh, uh, experience with diverse constituencies, which is, of course, a crucial, crucial component of being successful at the, uh, as the chancellor at UMass Amherst, which Kumbha has been. So he has- uh, Yeah, he, had,
2: uh, he has a, uh... Big shoes to fill, but you're right. His uh, the diversity aspect is is uh, what was stressed by UMass President Marty Meehan. Um, that he was born and raised Reyes was born and raised in Mexico, and uh, I'm very excited about that. It's uh, it bodes well for our university.
1: Yeah, can't wait to have him on the show. Let's turn now, if we might, to our first guest, who is Sylvia Rodriguez Vega. Her new book is Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children. Sylvia Rodriguez Vega is an assistant professor of Chicana and Chicano studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her life began as well, a trajectory that, that she would become a professor at the University of Santa Barbara was hardly a given. She does write in her book Drawing Deportation that she was undocumented, and that that undocumented experience was, of course, crucial to forming her views of the world, and her experience was, of course, vital to her academic pursuits as well. Uh, Sylvia Rodriguez Vega, thank you so much for being with us. I was wondering if you would be kind enough to share a bit about your background and how it has informed your work of working with children uh, when we'll get to the substance of your book, Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children just a minute. Tell us a bit about you, if you would.
3: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, I grew up knowing that my family were not from the U.S., that I was born in Mexico, and that at some point when I wanted to get a driver's license, that experience really came to the forefront because I couldn't do that. And soon after, many obstacles started to become very evident, like applying for uh, college. I didn't even know that I could go to college. Although at the same time, I desperately wanted to, to get an education. My dream was to become a legislator because I knew how laws were impacting my family. We couldn't travel to see our extended family um, back in Mexico. and You know, I saw my parents suffer a lot because of this experience. And eventually uh, my family also was separated because of immigration policies uh, a few times. And that experience really marked me. It really impacted my siblings and I. Um, And I would say that the saving grace of, of that time was my own experience with theater and art. And I think that was a constant that I relied on. Um, I eventually somehow made it to college. I only applied to one school. I got in thankfully. Um, And then soon after my academic trajectory took uh, another turn, but art was always there. And so when working um, in community or in schools, I always included art and I saw how it was powerful, not only for me, but for the people that I was working with
1: your book talks about the importance of art and creative endeavors in helping children survive separation uh, the distress of having family members taken away from them uh, the living in fear even if it hadn't happened to their family living in fear that that is what would happen to their family i i think it's clear uh to that that children suffer. Uh, And I'm wondering what it is that you found in doing your research uh, about art and and your work with children, what you found that was unexpected, if anything, to you about how children survive this kind of distress.
3: You know, what was unexpected was the humor in all of this. I knew that children were suffering because i had seen it firsthand. I met children who um, saw their parents get detained and deported. I met children who lost parents, who were afraid to go to school, um, who just suffered academically, personally, emotionally in all areas of their lives because of immigration policies. And so in doing this work, what really surprised me was children's ability to use humor and satire to talk about these very difficult conversations. Um, and I think that was what really marked the trajectory of this work was showing people not only what children experience but the potential that children have to reimagine these very destructive situations.
1: Now, Professor Sylvia Rodriguez Vega, in your book drawing Deportation, Art, and Resistance Among Immigrant Children, uh, you tell some really uh, difficult but as well very poignant stories. I like to have our listeners uh, have the I like to have listeners have the opportunity to, to know what a book sounds like uh, and I was wondering if you'd be kind enough to read a couple of paragraphs for us. I'm looking now actually at the very beginning at the introduction under the heading from cage Childhoods to Cage Children. Could you read a couple of those? A uh, paragraph for us please
3: definitely daniela was nine years old when she started coming into the community center in phoenix arizona to do homework sometimes we would play sports or do arts and crafts she loved volunteering to pass out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches during snack time daniela wore a high ponytail that at the end of the day would be low after a full day of playing One afternoon in 2007, Daniela rushed into the center without her backpack and with no ponytail. I knew something was wrong. Her face had a look of desperation. Crying and distraught, Danny told me that the sheriffs have taken her father. She sobbed and could not take full breaths as she tried to tell us what happened. The sheriffs took him, she cried. She was unsure if if her father would be deported to Mexico and feared that she would never see him again. Sadly, this was not an uncommon occurrence at the center. For months, Maricopa County Sheriff's deputies would carry out immigration raids in that neighborhood, specifically in the mobile homes in front of our community center where Daniela and many immigrant families live. After this incident, Daniela did not return as often. She lost focus at school and once confessed that she wanted to stop going as she feared that when she returned, her mother might also be missing too. Unfortunately, Daniela was not the only student who came into the center sharing similar stories of separation and fear. Almost 10 years later in 2016, Elisa, a 12-year-old who lives in Los Angeles, was feeling the same pain and distraction at school because of losing one of her family members and being far from her loved ones. She said, we...
1: I'm sorry, did you want to finish that The paragraph? I was
3: just going to say... She said in this quote, you know, is a little bit difficult. Um, We saw on the news that his body, Elisa's cousin, was found on the border and she recounted the story. And so these are the ways that I saw immigration policies impact children like um, Daniela and Elisa. Mm
1: -hmm. Tell us how you worked directly with the children uh, and Mm -hmm. conducted the research for your book, Drawing Deportation.
3: Yeah, so I first started this work in Arizona during the Obama administration. And this work really came from this moment where we were going to create a community mural. And I asked kids what they wanted the mural to be about. And one of the children said about peace. And I said, peace sounds amazing. What does peace look like to you? And the child said, it looks like Sheriff Joe Arpaio shaking hands with a Mexican. This mural was so powerful, but eventually the community center didn't allow us to do it. So I asked kids, can you draw a picture or a poem or write a letter about why this matters? And I collected these drawings and that moment really led me to create the project in California where I also conducted interviews. I met with parents and I taught a class of theater in Los Angeles Um, and there I also collected over 136 drawings. Um, And so both of these places borrow from looking at drawing, at theater performance, at journaling and poetry, but also um, at interviews with teachers and and family members. So, you know, the methods include an analysis of of all of this data. and a curriculum that I developed that relied on theater for bilingual students at a school.
1: I understand your investment in your belief, justifiable belief as to how theater and the arts can make life better for these children who suffer from United States immigration policy. What I'm wondering is whether or not you see this work important as it is crucial as it is to the individual children, whether you see it as being a minor footnote to immigration policy, because it's so utterly and overly destructive that very little actually can ameliorate it very much. And I don't mean to diminish the work in any way, which I think is just crucially important and the work that you describe, which is heartfelt and heartwarming. But you also talk about all of the families that have been so badly hurt through family separation policies, and it seems to me that it's it's kind of a, 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 it's 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 not really able to begin to address the overall devastation. And I'd appreciate your response to that.
3: Yeah, Bill, I I think that's very fair, because I although I know that art does help children and it can be be so useful for families, for schools, especially where this is happening, it isn't enough of a solution for children. And it, it isn't um, something that can fix a broken system. Um, the issue is, is very much a structural and historical one. And this, my hope is not necessarily to fix the situation, but to allow people to see the consequences of it. I think we're often divorced from uh, the impact of many of these policies that happen, and we think they're so far from our lives, but most of these children are U.S. citizens, and um, I think it's a call for action in in, um, thinking about how we can also um, change what is happening, not necessarily just leaving it up to politicians.
1: You talk about how the children who are U.S. citizens are nonetheless impacted in much the same way as uh, children who are not because the fear in the community is the same. The, the, the stress caused by the possibility that your uncle or your father or your mother or your siblings might be taken away at any time. This just has an extraordinarily difficult impact on families and it's not a division on the basis of citizenship. It's a division on the basis of color and ethnicity. And I'd appreciate your telling us more about that.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. Um, and I'm not the first researcher to find that children who are citizens, who have parents who have documentation and are not at risk for deportation, also fear immigration laws, fear police officers, immigration officials, and are afraid that they also might be detained or deported or their family members. And so we see how these policies are not just impacting people who are undocumented, but have a wide reach. Also in terms of um, having people just disappear from your community, from your school, that also is one of the things that came across that really worried children um, of all documentation statuses.
1: We are speaking with Sylvia Rodriguez Vega. Professor Vega's new book is Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the drawings that are reproduced. They're so moving, reproduced in this book. And we're going to talk about American immigration policy today and tomorrow, what the Trump administration did and what the Obama administration did as well. We'll be right back.
0: Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan, that's probably a good idea too. Hit the ice all season long, right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015 and 1240 WHMP
4: I'm not sure if opposites attract but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Francis Rayum, the Money Doctor with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The Hug Plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Francis Ray. i The Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com.
5: Picture perfect days here in the valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots in the valley. Check out the new and expanded bar area and dine by the warm and cozy fire. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday through Thursday starting at noon, Friday and Saturday starting at 8, and don't forget Sunday brunch from 8 to 2. The Bridgeside Grill, right in the heart of downtown Sunderland.
1: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We continue our conversation with Professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, Sylvia Rodriguez Vega, whose new book is Drawing Deportation Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children. You spend a significant amount of time in the book, Professor, uh, discussing immigration policy appropriately and importantly so. And you discuss both the Obama administration's policy and the Trump administration's policies, and you point out the significant similarities between those administrations and some of the differences too. And I'm wondering if you would spend a minute or two with us, giving us your perspective on the different differences in immigration policy under Trump and under Obama.
3: Yeah, that's a great question because I find that people, are often most surprised by this. Um, While the Obama administration employed a narrative claiming that only those immigrants who were quote unquote, the worst criminals would be deported. Um, What we saw was that Obama had a deportation record that was beyond any other administration before him. And what I argue in the book is that Obama created the blueprint for the Trump administration um, and you know, some of the ways that this happened was through focusing on enforcement, mainly. Um, For example, there was this policy called the 287G agreement, and that essentially made local law enforcement have a relationship with immigration officials, like Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And so often, if there was any kind of interaction with police that a, a person would have or an immigrant, um that often led for example jaywalking or a taillight not working in your car um, and so you got pulled over or or you were a victim of a crime and you called the police they would ask for your id or driver's license and if you didn't have this document then um, you'd be sent to immigration and so eventually the trump administration took all of these measures and continued to focus on enforcement and took all of these policies of separating families to an extreme uh, in the summer of 2018 when the zero tolerance policy outrightly focused on separating children, toddlers, babies from their parents as a way of warning people who wanted to come to not do so because they would suffer um, immensely. And so Both of these policies and administrations really relied on enforcement and on family separation to impact immigration um, perceptions and rhetoric in general.
1: I do have the impression and I do believe that the Trump administration actually was far more intentionally cruel. That family separation was an objective of the Trump administration and that Trump had no compassion or uh, abilities to, or desire to have any uh, uh, feelings of uh, empathy towards the plight of immigrants. And I think that Obama was different in that way. Maybe you disagree.
3: No, I think that there's some truth to that. Um, I think that Obama really came into office wanting to change immigration policies, to create an immigration reform, to pass not only um, DACA Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, but also the DREAM Act. And I think because of many circumstances, um, we never got very far with any of these policies. We did not get an immigration reform. And it was through um, organizing and pressure from undocumented youth that DACA passed um, during during the campaigning time and that that is true and that is part of, of the legacy of the Obama administration. However, there is outright cruelty and the suffering of families and children was the exact point of the policies that the Trump administration passed and enforced. And Trump essentially upended asylum processes um, and wanted to completely do without DACA and many policies that the Obama administration did put in effect, and so there was a point. There was um, cruelty. There was this intentional suffering that the Trump administration wanted to create
1: in immigrant families. Right. I mean, to me, Trump's Trump's putting children in cages and then having those images spread around the world. That was part of his policy. Tell. The immigrants how much we're going to hurt them and their families, then maybe they won't come. I mean, that seemed to me the policy, you think that's right?
3: No, that's exactly right. And I would just add that, although Trump did this, it wasn't the first time that it had been done. Family separation, and I wouldn't say necessarily quote unquote caging, but there were moments where children were detained. And separated from their families, and put in in semi cage like, um, you know, uh, rooms, um, which were called hieleras or ice ice rooms that were freezing temperatures. And all of this happened during the Obama administration. Um, so it is a very complicated um, topic.
1: Let me ask you this: um, You've worked with the children of immigrants. Uh, You've worked with children who have been uh, hurt and harmed. I'm wondering, we also have Michael McSherry is joining us with his microphone on, which is, if Michael, if you could turn your microphone off, that would be helpful. Okay. I'm sorry for that interruption. Sylvia Rodriguez Vega, I'd like to ask you, with all of the work that you have done with immigrant families, with all the thought and research that you have given to immigration policy, where do you see us going now? What would you like to see happen?
3: I think initially we need to reunite those children that were separated under the Trump administration. During that summer, there are still about 1,000 children out of the 3,000 that have not been reunited with their parents or caregivers. And that is a, a, a tragedy. Um that's, I think, the first place where I would start. Another place would be to reunite the, the families that have been separated um, and to think about the detention and deportation policies as destroying the fabric of our, of our entire society. Um, and so not only an immigration reform, but really a reform about our ideology of how we see immigrants. Um, I think that that is an important way to start. And one of those ways is, is through the media, um, sharing these stories of, of immigrant children and families. So I appreciate, you know, this opportunity to do that. Um, but definitely an immigration reform and to halt all family separations would be the first place.
1: Do you think that's possible And as a policy? And I ask that in light of something that you point out in your book, which is that to the extent there was a failure of border security, was a failure at the northern border. But what immigration policy has been is hurt people, mostly brown people, coming to the United States from the southern border. And it strikes me that absent some real change in our racism that drives U.S. policy, that we're not likely to get to a more efficacious and fair immigration system. Your response to that?
3: I think that is 100% correct. We can't not think about immigration policies divorced from racist white supremacy projects because from the beginning of time, immigration policy was racist. It was meant to keep specific groups and ethnic backgrounds out of the United States through the quota acts and the Chinese exclusion act and even the creation of the border. Um, and so that legacy continues on. And we see now, you know, there are different policies when we think about uh, Ukrainian refugees, when we think about Cuban migrants, um, but if if folks are brown or black, then our perceptions are much different. And there's a sort of dehumanization that happens um, that has happened since the beginning of the country. I write about, the, the separation of families with Native American children through the boarding schools. I write about the, 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 uh, the detention of the Japanese families in internment camps. And of course, the, the sale and separation of black children um, during enslavement. And so these are legacies that are rooted in racism and that impact our immigration system till this day.
1: We have been speaking with Sylvia Rodriguez Vega. Professor Vega is the author of the new book, Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children. She does refer to herself in in the book, not only as an activist, but as an artivist, because she uses art in her activism. Uh, I want you to know how much we appreciate the book. And I want our listeners to know this, in this book, there are really extraordinary reproductions of in color, of the drawings that the children have done. there are probably 20 pages of them. They are so moving, as is the uh, writing itself, but so so is the art that is reproduced. And so we thank you for bringing all of that and sharing all of that with us, Professor Vega. We thank you for your time and we thank you for your book. Again, the book is Drawing to Reportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children. The author is Sylvia Rodriguez Vega available through your local, local independent bookstore. Thank you again, Professor, for being with us and thank you for your book. Thank
3: you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
1: We'll be right back.
6: Came a young man, confused and alone, determined
7: bound for America.
0: This is Talk The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A new law expanding access to public records related to police investigations went into effect in Massachusetts almost two years ago. Investigative reporter Dusty Christensen made requests to local police departments for all records related to police misconduct. So far, he's found that just about 3% of all civilian complaints filed in Holyoke resulted in any substantial findings or discipline for officers.
9: There's still a whole host of investigations they have not
10: sent us. What they have sent us so far is just the times that civilians have complained and then the police department investigated those complaints.
8: Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia declined to comment on Dusty's story, but did speak with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP's Talk the Talk.
11: Without dismissing or trying to justify public concern, certainly there are things that I'm very much looking forward to improving at the police department so that we're making sure that we're de-escalating these concerns from happening as much as possible.
8: The City Council's Public Safety Committee will be presented with the final police audit report on March 6th to better address the shortcomings within the department. Northampton is the latest school district in the region to receive a threat of violence. Just after noon on Wednesday, the police department received a call threatening violence at the high school. Officers immediately responded to the school building, conducted an investigation, cleared the school of students and staff, and finally determined the threat was not credible. Javier Reyes could be the next chancellor at UMass Amherst. UMass President Marty Meehan says he's advising the board of trustees that Reyes is the man for the job. Trustees will meet Thursday to discuss the recommendation.
12: Increasing clouds this morning and then some scattered rain showers developing after 4 o'clock this afternoon. Warm with a high of 60. Showers and drizzle tonight, overnight lows of 40 to 46. Rain likely tomorrow morning, scattered showers in the afternoon, a high of 56. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
8: This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
9: Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El ex vicepresidente Mike Pence planea luchar contra una citación del fiscal especial que supervisa las investigaciones sobre los esfuerzos del expresidente Donald Trump y sus aliados para anular los resultados de las elecciones de 2020. Pence y sus abogados planean citar motivos constitucionales mientras se preparan para resistir los esfuerzos del fiscal especial Jack Smith para obligar a su testimonio ante un gran jurado. Argumentan que, debido a que Pence estaba desempeñando su papel como presidente del Senado el 6 de enero de 2021, está protegido de verse obligado a abordar sus acciones bajo la cláusula constitucional de discurso o debate que protege a los miembros del Congreso. No está claro si los argumentos de Pence lograrán limitar o evitar por completo el testimonio del gran jurado, pero se espera que el Departamento de Justicia se oponga a esos esfuerzos y argumente que la cooperación del exvicepresidente es esencial para una investigación centrada en las acciones de Trump. En otras informaciones, los tres objetos aéreos aún no identificados derribados por Estados Unidos la semana pasada probablemente tenían simplemente un propósito benigno, reconoció la Casa Blanca el martes, al establecer una distinción entre ellos y el enorme globo chino que atravesó anteriormente Estados Unidos con un objetivo sospechoso de vigilancia. Los nuevos detalles se produjeron cuando las acciones de la administración de Biden durante las últimas dos semanas enfrentaron un nuevo escrutinio en el Congreso. En conjunto, las acciones plantearon cuestiones políticas y de seguridad sobre si la administración de Biden reaccionó de forma exagerada después de enfrentar las críticas de los republicanos por reaccionar con demasiada lentitud ante el gran globo chino. Incluso a medida que surge más información sobre los tres objetos, quedan preguntas sobre qué eran, quién los envió y cómo Estados Unidos podría responder a los objetos aéreos no identificados en el futuro. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
8: This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
1: And This is our Reverend and the Rabbi segment. <laughs> our Reverend this week is the Reverend uh, Michael McSherry from Edwards Church in Northampton. And I had started a discussion with uh, Reverend McSherry uh, some time ago that I was particularly interested in following up because of the Super Bowl last weekend. I-, I know, I know, I know. It was an exciting game. I got it. But it also, I think, was very disturbing when you step back from it and say, Sunday mornings is the time when Christians in particular go to church and celebrate peace and love. And then Sunday afternoon, we have this national phenomenon, which takes place on other days of the week as well, uh, in which we celebrate and honor viciousness and pay a lot of money to see it and pay a lot of money for individuals to hurt themselves badly. And we bemoan the men being carted off the field, but then we expect it and we actually wait for it. It's part of the thrill of will that happen? And we find a report last week that 93% of football players end up with some kind of brain injury. These are horrifying stories of what happens to people because of football. And I would appreciate, Michael McSherry, if you could give us some perspective what the Bible says about violence, but what your view is for the biblical uh, teachings about our enjoying it so much. Help us out here.
13: Great question, Bill, as always. Thank you. Um, so. Uh, as is uh, you know popular and for good reason, I think for good um, uh, theoretical and practical reasons. I'm going to start with a confession of my own personal background in violence. Um, I went to if um, you know, skip over the childhood neighborhood part, um, schoolyards, but I went to a Jesuit prep school in suburban D.C., and we were a small all male prep school that engaged in in um, a sports competition against other larger high schools in the area. And since we were a smaller school, if you were at all able bodied, you were expected to try out for whatever team we were fielding that season and to compete at the level you were capable of competing in. This means I played football at least for two years because there was intense social pressure to play if you could. And I became personally um, exposed to the level to which one has to get in touch with your um, aggression, your your personal um, animal aggression. Uh, Because if you're of an ordinary build, you can't push somebody that's 20 or 30 or 40 pounds bigger than you off the line, or you can't get them out of your way and quote, do your job, um, you know, as as they say in Patriots Nation, you know, just do your job, um, next man up, all that stuff. Um, so even though we were physically smaller than almost every team we played, we were usually successful because we were coached to be aggressive as possible within the rules. Um, and I know you're a practicing lawyer, so no, you you have witnessed in the legal system what happens when zealous advocacy right is played right up to the edge of what the law will tolerate um in the nfl just like uh, the nba and other uh, sports leagues we celebrate competition that goes right to the edge of being called a foul and we tolerate it we encourage it we expect it because one that level of energy produces the most exciting competition to watch and yeah there's that thrill you referred to in the opening about the possibility of something bad happening right um so there is part of human nature that i think um that enjoys the spectacle that enjoys the risk um and it is barely contained um i think as some athletes at the highest level would say You know, if you're able to jump up in the air and twist at a deliberate angle and catch um, a pass, which is being delivered with pinpoint accuracy, there's some admirable athleticism in terms of controlling your body under those circumstances. But at ground level, the way the game is won and lost by, as they say, controlling the line of scrimmage is just adults unleashing the maximum physical force on each other and hoping they can finish the season intact. Um, So it is organized violence. What does it
1: say about us that we enjoy this so much? We spend so much of our national treasure to watch it, that we celebrate it, that we encourage it, um, that we actually try to funnel uh, the, the youth in a lot of ways towards this towards this sport towards this business and how is that reconcilable or is it reconcilable with uh, christian teaching
13: so um reconcilable with christian teaching <laughs> uh, well very uh, very difficult as far as i'm concerned In 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 most christian churches in the last few weeks we've been focusing Um, If you're following the Gospels, Uh, we've been focusing on the Gospel of Matthew and specifically the Sermon on the mountain which Jesus. um, On the one hand says I have come uh, not to abrogate or cut off or in any way diminish the law or the law and the prophets, but I have come to fulfill it. And then he goes on to say you must be. um, You my followers must be not only um, followers of the law, fulfillers of the law, but you must be even more scrupulous than the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says, you have heard it said. That thou shalt not murder, but I say unto you if you even get seriously angry. At your brother or sister, if you become so upset with one of your siblings that you're tempted to do them harm, you have already sinned. In other words, Jesus is almost calling on his followers, not almost. I think he is calling on his followers to train our emotions, to train our routine responses to being tempted to anger so that we channel our energy into non-destructive responses when we are challenged. You probably know that the civil rights activists of the 50s, 60s um, went to the Highland School for training in direct action and they were schooled to not respond when they were pushed and shoved and spit on. They were trained, the way Marines are trained for combat, they were trained to take a punch and not punch back. And that was nonviolence based. You could say it was Gandhi, you could say it was Christ, but it was nonviolence.
1: And when you look at the Highland School, um, When you look at that implementation of Christian teaching, Mm -hmm. you must say, I I see that as the highest form of of invocation, effectuation of belief. I I, I get that, but those were very special people Um, and it's not our culture. And, I, and 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 what I really and, and I don't mean to make this unduly personal, but um, you you give a sermon on a Sunday morning, and then I suspect that well, I don't want to make it personal to your congregation. Let's just but pastors across the country give sermons on Sunday uh, morning, and then engage in this with their congregations with these celebrations of violence on Sunday afternoon. And I'm just wondering about that disconnect and whether you can help us in some ways reconcile that.
13: Well, um, the story of Christianity is the story of um, a people uh, wrestling with um, the teachings and the requirements of their leader, their spiritual leader, who's challenged them to live up to um, a standard, if you will, an ideal, um, that if we're honest with ourselves, keeps keeps evading us at the horizon. You know, if you take it seriously, you you know you would uh, stop funding organized violence. You would no longer watch the games, right? This is the the, the story you sent me. The the rabbi um, was saying, you know, if we if we follow the law right we the, the the jewish law we would not watch nfl games we would not buy products that sponsor ads that fund the nfl
2: um reverend i this is buzz and i have a actually i think we have to take a break and before we go to break i just want to set up the question that i have for after the break which is as a former athlete as a former wrestler we were never told to hurt mm-hmm. anybody this is what we were told, oh, no. win at all costs. So, And I think a lot of what happens in football, a lot of what happens, we can speak about violence, but this sort of, what do I have to do? I'll go to the ends of the earth as long as I win. It begets a whole lot of, I think, negative stuff, not the least of which is the violence we're talking about. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be back with the Reverend, the rabbi, but this is with the Reverend, Big Sherry. We'll be right back.
3: Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst.
12: What's new at the Wheatley Inn? everything the waitley inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a
15: beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area the only thing that hasn't changed is the menu offering classic new england fare the waitley inn has become famous for the waitley inn is open wednesday through saturday starting at 4 p.m and sunday from 1 to 7. pickup is also available with easy online ordering visit waitleyinn.com. eat greatly at the waitley
16: The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Authorization, enrollment, and activation activities are required. Receive all services. Contact institution for details.
7: Two lattes, please. On me. Yeah? My free Kasasa Cash Back checking account surprised me with sweet cash rewards. So thoughtful. Kasasa Cash back simply appreciates me. It also refunds my ATM withdrawal fees. Huh. My Megabank account just takes money out every month without even asking. Sounds like it's time to move on. Take
16: back the special treatment you deserve with Kasasa Cashback.
15: Ask for Kasasa by name at Franklin First
5: or online at franklinfirst.org. Federally insured by NCU. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, Their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available. And more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance, local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Moffray Insurance, call for a quote. 586-1000.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
1: And we continue our conversation with Reverend Michael McSherry of Edwards Church. We were talking during the break, continuing our conversation about violence and athleticism, both on a uh, collegiate and high school level and also on the professional levels. And Buzz, you had shared a story personal story about what happened to you in high school that I thought was pretty telling. Perhaps you could share that with our listeners and then sure, we'll I Reverend could get response.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, my two sports were baseball and wrestling because I was a small kid. And in wrestling, we had a very successful wrestling team. I wrestled at 122 back then and 133 back then. And what our coach would do is he would hit his fist, take a punch at the uh, concrete block walls, and then wipe the blood on each kid's face and talk about win, win, and derivations of the term win, um, so that when we went out there, it wasn't that I was engaging in violence because I wanted to engage in violence. It was whatever it takes to win, that's what we're instructed to do, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Reverend.
13: Thanks, Buzz. Uh, yeah, I had uh, I had coaches grab me by the shoulder pads or even the helmet shake me up a little bit and um, call me derogatory names because I wasn't hitting hard enough. Because as as a young football player, if you're going to dominate the line of scrimmage, right? You have to fly at the other person. You have to release with full force your body, controlled, but release your body into the other body and dominate it. Push it out of the way. And you're doing this with your head and your shoulders. I had a teammate um, who was from Ecuador and his father pleaded with him not to play American football because he was a very talented soccer player. But soccer or what they call football in most of the rest of the world was a spring sport. And so he succumbed to the peer pressure to play football because he was a gifted athlete and could run fast and maneuver and um, his knee was severely damaged when he was tackled, catching a pass. Mm.
3: You
13: know, it was his father's, his father's greatest fear realized. So, you know, we, we, you know, we're human beings, we have all the human passions and they can be stirred as they will. Um, we can invite and allow them to be stirred in any direction we're open to.
1: Do you have any final thoughts for us, Reverend McSherry, on uh, uh, how we should go about, as uh, sentient human beings, going about uh, w- dealing with this importance of, uh, vi- of violence sport like the NFL uh, in our lives? How do, how do we make it part of our lives or make it not part of our lives?
13: well personally um for lent which is the you know christian season of a preparing for easter and it's a season of uh, a penitential sensibility and introspection about how we can become better followers of our spiritual leader um, one of the things i'm going to do is read a, a, a book um, that i heard about on the radio last week i think the author's name is amanda ripley she's um, a journalist and she wrote a book I I think it's called high conflict. I heard about it on Krista Tippett's podcast on being, and it has to do with the nature of human conflict, how we're drawn into it, and how we can learn how to govern ourselves in a way that tends towards de-escalation rather than escalation. Well,
1: we can, we can hope and pray for that. Um, Reverend Michael McSherry we really appreciate your time and insights Michael McSherry is one of our regular reverends on the Reverend and the rabbi he is with us once a month and we really appreciate your time and insight Reverend Michael McSherry from Edwards Church here in Northampton for those of our listeners who are with us in the morning coming up right after this news break we have another full hour of the program including Brian Adams we will be talking to an expert about of all things loons, really, we need more loons and we're gonna get them, seriously. And for afternoon listeners, we thank you for having spent some of your day with us for not only talking the talk, but also walking the walk. For Buzz Eisenberg, Dan Torres and our WHMP team, I'm Bill Newman, hoping you'll be with us tomorrow in the morning and in the afternoon for another edition of Talk the Talk.
14: Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities, as well as services and support for members
7: 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at
14: northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160.
15: The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online. Live at local news and
0: talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.
8: It's 10 o'clock.
0: This is CBS News on the Hour, your home for original reporting.
14: I'm Deborah Rodriguez. EPA Administrator Michael Regan will meet with people who live in East Palestine, Ohio, in a couple of hours after many packed into a town hall meeting last night, demanding answers about the safety of their air and water. In the wake of a toxic train derailment two weeks ago, correspondent Roxana Sabiri spoke to one of them. Resident
17: Melissa Blake says two days after the derailment, doctors diagnosed her with acute bronchitis from chemical fumes. They quarantined me. They gave me a breathing treatment. They had to put me on oxygen. They were going to wash my clothes because they didn't know what was on me. One of the chemicals on the train, vinyl chloride, is classified as a carcinogen.
14: The FDA is taking a closer look at some common drugs that may contain a cancer-causing chemical. CBS's Stacey Lynn. There have been several blood pressure meds
8: recalled recently for having nitrosamines in them. Those contaminants also triggered recalls of the heartburn drug Zantac, metformin for diabetes, and Shantix, which helps people quit smoking. This has prompted the FDA to ask drug makers to evaluate all products that might contain
14: the chemical and conduct follow-up testing by October. At Michigan State University... (laughs) vigil for three students shot and killed on campus Monday. Police are holding a news conference this hour to update their investigation into the gunman who shot himself to death. They've said he had no apparent connection to the college. Two days after the shooting, some lawmakers in the South are promoting guns on campus.
6: Republican-led West Virginia lawmakers have advanced a bill that would allow people with concealed gun permits to bring weapons onto state college and university campuses. Brettina Jeffers is a student at Marshall University. Should be a state-wide decision, in my opinion.
18: In a way, it should be Marshall's decision, but at the same time, overall, we're all going to come together as a state, so the state's going to end up deciding in the end.
6: There's widespread opposition to the campus. Campus gun plan among students, faculty, staff, and college and university administrators. Jim Crisilda, CBS News.
14: Looking for a JOB? Not as many Americans are. First-time unemployment claims edged lower last week to 194,000. Bank rates, Mark Hamrick.
0: Both new and continuing claims are still below their year-ago levels. Remember, the nation's jobless rate fell to 3.4% in January. And as of last check, there were more than 11 million job openings in the U.S. Wholesale
14: prices rose a greater than expected 7% in January. Dow's down 394. A staffing change at a daytime talker. It's live! with Kelly and Ryan. And Seacrest says that after six years, he's leaving the ABC show. He says working with Kelly's been a dream, but it's uh, time to move back to the West Coast. Live is taped in New York. Seacrest will be replaced by Ripa's husband, Mark Consuelos. This is CBS News.
0: If you have unfiled taxes or are in debt to the IRS, this is important news. The IRS just rolled out a new program to help struggling taxpayers more easily resolve their tax problems. It's called the Taxpayer Relief Initiative. And it opens up powerful new options for people looking to get back on the right track with the IRS. And no one knows this program like the professionals at Opti- Optima Tax Relief, America's most trusted tax resolution company. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debt for their clients and have the expertise and experience to help you. One easy call to Optima can start the process, helping to put an end to your worries of wage garnishment, asset seizure, and other aggressive IRS actions. Make today the beginning of your fresh start with the IRS. Call the experts at Optima Tax Relief now for your free confidential consultation.
15: Call 800-343-6460. 800-343-6460. 608003436460
2: Optima Tax Relief Some restrictions
0: apply for complete details please visit optimataxrelief.
8: For whmp News I'm Jess Kyler A new law expanding access to public records related to police investigations went into effect in Massachusetts almost 2 years ago Investigative reporter Dusty Christensen made requests to local police departments for all records related to police misconduct. So far, he's found that just about 3% of all civilian complaints filed in Holyoke resulted in any substantial findings or discipline for officers.
10: There's still a whole host of investigations they have not sent us. What they have sent us so far is just the times that civilians have complained and then the police department investigated those complaints.
8: Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia declined to comment on Dusty's story, but did speak with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, on WHMP's Talk the Talk.
11: Without dismissing or trying to justify public concern, certainly there are things that I'm very much looking forward to improving at the police department so that we're making sure that we're de-escalating these concerns from happening as much as possible.
8: The City Council's Public Safety Committee will be presented with the final police audit report on March 6th to better address the shortcomings within the department. Northampton is the latest school district in the region to receive a threat of violence. Just after noon on Wednesday, the police department received a call threatening violence at the high school. Officers immediately responded to the school building, conducted an investigation, cleared the school of students and staff, and finally determined the threat was not credible. Javier Reyes could be the next chancellor at UMass Amherst. UMass President Marty Meehan says he's advising the board of trustees that Reyes is the man for the job. Trustees will meet Thursday to discuss the recommendation.
12: Increasing clouds this morning and then some scattered rain showers developing after 4 o'clock this afternoon. Warm with a high of 60. Showers and drizzle tonight. Overnight lows of 40 to 46. Rain likely tomorrow morning. Scattered showers in the afternoon. A high of 56. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis. 1015 WHMP
0: this is talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg on
1: whmp
2: and i am buzz eisenberg
1: and i'm bill newman
2: and with us is brian adams for our uh, the wonderful science and sensibility
15: yes yes thank you bill for coming up with a Or bill's
2: wife or buzz your wife somebody did do. i don't know i got it from bill the genius bill newman told That's me it. that great yeah. Great. Science and sensibility. So what do we have for science and sen- sensibility today?
15: Well, let me tell you first a little story. So um, this is my claim to fame. Tuesday night, I was out on our deck, and it was very quiet, but I did this.
12: Ooh, 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 ooh.
15: And there was silence. And then I did it again.
12: ooh, ooh, ooh,
15: ooh. Who was I trying to call in? This is a quiz. Buzz, who, who was I trying to call in?
2: Um, I think a person who, who has very strange affinities, no. I think.
15: No, no, that was <laughs> the wrong answer. Dan, you want to take a shot at this? Uh, a lunatic. Uh, no, no, both of you are wrong. Um, it was a great horned owl. That's who says, the who's awake? Me too. Ooh, 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 ooh. And great. who answered me but a great horned owl? So I was able to have this wonderful conversation with a great whore now. So that's my claim to fame. And and did you, I, what did you talk about? We talked about things that I will keep private and just between the owl and me. <laughs> what goes on in the woods stays in the woods. <laughs> okay. um, however, I did do this call afterwards.
12: Lou,
15: Lou, And I did not get a call back because that is the call of the loon and that's what we're talking about today and with us all the way from Portland Maine is Lucas Savoy Lucas is the director of loon programs at the biodiversity research institute in Portland Maine Lucas thanks so much for joining us today
10: Yes thanks for having me guys
2: Lucas before Brian begins his conversation I want to know how was his loon impression Uh
10: give it a
2: four, four out of 10. Hold on, a four out <laughs> of 10? <ten? laughs>
15: Hold on. Okay, we're switching owls, guests here. Owls, Lucas, owls, thanks, owls, thanks so much for joining the show, and we will never, ever have you back. Oh. He we're,
0: gave you an eight for the owl, so uh, Eight
15: for the owl. Okay, eight for the owl and a four for the loom. All right, we'll put you on the spot and have you, have you do that. Um, Lucas, we have two science words of the day uh, today. One is translocation and the other will hold off on. Um, and what you're involved in um, with the Biodiversity Research Institute is repopulating loons in Massachusetts, right, by translocating them from other uh, states, in this case probably New York and Maine. Can you talk about what you do as director of the loon program?
10: Yes, for sure. Yes, we're, we're involved in a large project to bring loons back to, to Massachusetts. They once were here a long time ago. They're, they're still here now, but just not in numbers that they used to be. Around the turn of the century, 1900, 1925, loons were completely wiped from the state of Massachusetts. It was through you know human, human efforts, exploitation, people shooting loons um, for meat or for just competition with fisheries. And loons are completely wiped out from the state. They are abundant throughout the state, throughout New England. And it wasn't until about 1975 when the first pair of loons returned back to to Massachusetts on Quabbin Reservoir actually. And so it took them a long time to come back on their own. And to this this day, there's still only about between 48 and 50 pairs now statewide. You know, so it's here we are 100 years since loons have been wiped out. And they're probably maybe a third of the way to where they could kind of recolonize the state. And it's it's no fault of their own. It's just their their natural their natural abilities to to reproduce. They're, they're long lived birds. They only they only hatch one or two chicks a year, and often often subject to nest failure or when loon chicks hatch are often eaten by things like eagles. So their productivity is generally pretty low. So they're just slow to recolonize by themselves. And what we have in Massachusetts now is a bottleneck of loons. Right, the first loons are turned back to Quabbin Reservoir and loons don't disperse very far on their own, they're their homebodies. And so they're all bottlenecked in the central part of the state around that Quabbin, Worcester County area. And we need to get them out to the bookend state parts of the state, the Berkshires and Western Mass and also the Eastern part of the state where they once were. And that's where loon translocation comes into play. It's an effort to bring loons from areas where they exist and are abundant, such as Maine and New York, and transport them to Massachusetts and rear them and release them into the wild and get to them to come back on their own in a few years as as they mature. So it's a it's a large project and, and it's really this project is really driven by a, a catastrophic event that happened in Massachusetts back in 2003. There was a large oil spill that happened on the coast near the Cape Cod Canal in Buzzards Bay it happened in april it's a terrible time there's never a good time for oil spills but it was a terrible time for loons and other water birds because they hadn't migrated from the coast yet to head back inland to their breeding areas so there was about 500 loons that that died in that oil spill in 2003. so it's been this very long process working with the wildlife trustees uh, folks from the massachusetts mass wildlife and the u.s fish and wildlife service to try to determine you know how much funds are going to be available from the responsible party the people that spill the oil to go into loon and other bird restoration programs and so the the funding that we receive for this loon translocation project is, is the result of that mitigation funds from that oil spill and so what we're trying to do is restore loon years lost and what we know from loons now over 20 I've been with this with my organization for 25 years now and and a lot of us have been doing loon research across New England and North America for a long time. And what we've learned about loons is that a lot of our loons that breed here in New England and New York spend the winter in in Massachusetts, and Rhode Island waters. So those loons that were were killed in that oil spill were directly linked to New England populations, potentially in Massachusetts as well, but certainly New England and, and New York. And so that's where the focus of these projects came into play. And so for, for Massachusetts, the best way to get loons back to the state actually is through the development of a, a translocation program. Yeah.
15: So, so translocation
10: loons are slow to recover.
15: So translocation means that you capture uh, chicks or adults from these lakes in, uh, in Maine and New York. I assume in New York, you're meaning the Adirondacks. So, so you actually capture the adults, or, you, or do you take the chicks and the nest?
10: We we take the chicks. Um, if we so for an adult, if we catch an adult and try to translocate an adult, in order to catch a loon, I'll back up. In order to catch a loon, they usually have to have have chicks. They have to be a family of loons. Um, they're very territorial, so we go out and and we uh, we use digital we use digital calls, Brian, uh, to to entice the loons close to our, our boat, and that's how we catch them at night.
15: Uh, I'm don't I have am chicks, available.
10: Just dive and run.
15: Lucas, I'm available for hire at a reduced fee because of your good work. 60% uh, off. 60 per, I was thinking more like 10% okay. off, but.
10: <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Okay. And so, yeah, so if we, if we capture an adult loon uh, and try to translocate an adult loon, it would just find its way back to its lake that it, that it, it, uh, it nests on. But for a chick, they've never experienced migration before, they've ne- never left their natal lake. So, really, it's, it's a way to get them to imprint on an area through translocation, and, and that's their new home. Uh, the area that they're translocated to and reared on for a period of time is their new home. And that was the hope the, with the project, was that these chicks, as they return, because the loons don't, aren't able to um, breed until they're about anywhere between 4 and 11 years old, on average 6. So, they take a few years to mature. And they typically will spend those few years on the ocean, actually, and not return back to the lakes until they're four, five, six years old.
15: And they're not breeding. So that was
10: the first test.
15: They're not breeding when they're out in the ocean. Is that correct? They're freshwater breeders? Is that right? Or are there loons? uh and and they're And some of them don't um, reproduce until they're 11 years old. That seems really late. How old do, do loons get?
10: They can live a long time, so we, we've learned now through our, our our research across North America, where we catch loons, we we put color bands in their legs, so we're able to determine individuals. We have individuals that are at least 30; some are upwards of 35 years old at this point. Wow! So they can live. We, we don't know how long they can live, but at least 30, some of them for sure.
15: Yeah. Um So you capture the chicks from these lakes, uh, Adirondacks and northern Maine, I assume. Um, transport them to lakes in Massachusetts, right, and then release them as chicks? How how does that process work?
10: Yeah, you know, we have two ways to do that. So we what we call is a pen rearing effort. So we erect pens in a water body in Massachusetts, and we bring the loon chicks, the younger loon chicks. They're about anywhere between five and eight weeks of age. and At that point, they're just starting to catch fish of their own, but they still need help. So we bring those chicks of that age down to Massachusetts and put them in pens, rearing pens, where they're in there. And we're feeding these fish live minnows every day to kind of hone their skills in catching fish on their own. And they'll be in those pens for anywhere between three to five weeks until they're ready to to get released and and be able to catch fish on their own. And then we'll also bring down older chicks that are at least eight, nine, 10 weeks of age. And we directly release those chicks because they're already adept at catching fish on their own. They don't need to be in the pens to to learn those skills. So we'll drive them to Massachusetts and release them directly onto the lakes.
2: Uh, Lucas, this is Buzz. I'm wondering whether or not there are predators here in Massachusetts uh, for which they would be prey that uh, make it a more dangerous translocation uh, than, than it would be if they just stayed up in Maine.
10: There's nothing in particular in Massachusetts that's different than Maine Bald eagles are, are typically the the largest predator for a loon uh, loons are big birds they're 12 13 pounds when they're mature they're they're big strong they can dive well so there's not a, aside from us in, in bald eagles there's not a lot that can harm an adult loon um, so yeah there's nothing different in Massachusetts that would make it more or uh, risky for a loon to live here
15: um Lucas let's stick with bald eagles uh, for the moment one of the most successful uh, restoration programs that's been done in, I think, in, in the country even, has been the restoration of bald eagles uh, and captive breeding of bald eagles and then releasing those young uh, into, into the wild. It started with quabbin and now um, bald eagle being delisted from the endangered species list, at least as an endangered species. Is captive breeding a thing with loons or is it just removing wild chicks from different lakes?
10: Yeah, loons are difficult. The eagle, as you mentioned, the eagles are the, the big success story, right? And peregrine falcon is the other species here in Massachusetts that has, has benefited from from um, captive breeding. But loons are loons are tough. They, they don't like to be in captivity. There's no loons in a zoo anywhere in the world. There's no loons because they can't live in captivity for long periods of time. And that was kind of a pro- one of the process we had to work through with this translocation project was how how long can we hold a loon chicken captivity before it's detrimental to that to that bird, because they can't live in there for months at a time in captivity or years at a time they'll they'll die they're they're too stressed and they they um, they gain a, a fungus in their in their air sacs that that kills them from stress.
15: Well, really interesting. We're talking with Lucas Savoy. Lucas is the director of loon programs and the co-director uh, for the center of the, um, of
2: the organization called Biodiversity Research
15: Institute in
2: Portland. Um, and, and, be, Buzz. and before we take a break, I just have to ask Lucas Savoy, why do people call me loony?
10: Total coincidence. Um, from what I understand, the, the old, the old meaning of the word loon is, it means crazy. Um, crazy lunatic, but the loon, the common loon that we have that we're talking about is just guilty by association, same
2: name. Uh, Lucas, what do you... I I really want to thank Bill, Brian, and Dan for not answering your question. I was just
15: going to answer the question, but but I will refrain from doing that. But before break, I will ask you one thing. Um, What do you get when you cross a waterfowl with a blood-sucking insect? A lunatic... Ooh, lunatic. lunatic. And with that, we will take a break. Uh, we're talking with Lucas uh, but from the Biodiversity Research Institute in Portland, Maine. And we'll talk more Looney Tunes when we get back. All your
2: life You were only waiting for this moment to arrive.
17: Blackbird singing in the dead of night take these sunken eyes
0: you're listening to talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg
7: i'm lisa riley join me saturdays at 9:30 a.m as we shine a light on justice-involved underdogs their struggles their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a path back into society and prove that failure isn't final. Unlock your future, rewrite your story. Tune into the Hustler Files right here on WHMP.
0: Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad, with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sauteed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sauteed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton.
18: Getting your credit score and credit report FREE is another great reason to bank a Greenfield savings bank with the GSB Credit Center. You can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Getting your credit score and credit report FREE is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings bank with the GSB credit center. You can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Monitoring your credit score and report is an important tool in protecting your financial. Finances and can help you identify errors and prevent fraud. Our GSB Credit Center is just one of the great benefits that comes free with both our free online banking and our free mobile app. And with the GSB mobile app, you can check your score and access your credit report free anytime and from anywhere using your mobile device. And checking your credit report at the GSB Credit Center will not affect your credit score. Sign up today at any of our offices or online.
15: Greenfield Savings Bank, greenfieldsavings.com. Member
0: FDIC, member DIF. Mobile carrier charges may apply. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
15: And we are back with Lucas Savoy. Lucas is director of loon programs at the Biodiversity Research Institute in Portland, Maine. During the break, we were sort of feeling bad for the parents, the loon mom and dad, with their young uh, taken away from them, translocated from the lakes in Adirondacks, their home lakes in Adirondacks or in Maine, and brought to some of these Massachusetts lakes um, do the parents know that a chick is gone? So a few questions here, Lucas. One: How, how, how do you decide which lake, lo, which lakes, to translocate loons from? Uh, which chicks to take? And is this uh, is this a tragedy for mom and dad?
10: Sure. So we we what we do is we find loon pairs in Maine or New York that have two chicks. So loons will remember will only have one or two chicks a season. If they're lucky a lot of them don't even hatch chicks because they'll experience some sort of nest failure but when we do find loon pairs with two chicks we monitor that pair until the chicks are the right age for the translocation and then we'll go out at night when we do our captures we'll, we'll collect one of the two chicks uh, and take one chick and it's evaluated by a veterinarian before we hit the road to massachusetts and the other chick remains with the parents. Um, so we don't want to di- totally disrupt a family by taking both chicks or even taking just a single chick from a pair that only has one chick. We'll leave those those birds alone. And loons are really accustomed to losing chicks. You know, it's kind of a, a little bit of a cold way to think about it. So if a loon, if a loon fledges a half a chick per year, they can maintain a stable population. So in most years, loons aren't fledging, aren't aren't raising a loon chick to fledging age. Like I mentioned, bald eagles are a big predator. Other, other kind of things come into play where loons, loons experience loss of their young very frequently.
15: Um, we're in the Pioneer Valley here, in the Connecticut River Valley. Uh, are there any lakes in our area that loons are being translocated to?
10: Yes, we're, we're more so translocating loon chicks. We just started this effort actually in Western Mass in last summer, 2022. We were working the eastern part of the state for a few years. And now we're, we've switched gears to Western Massachusetts last year and, and for the next two summers as well. And we're primarily releasing to loons and lakes in Berkshire County at the moment. Um, but there are there are loon pairs actually that are forming in Franklin County as well.
15: So how successful has this program uh, been and how do you determine success
10: so far very successful we started the uh, the trial of, the, of this method because no one's tried this before so we started this back in 2015 so eight years ago and now this spring in the eastern part of the state and we've we've released 47 loon chicks in the eastern part of the state to this to, to today and we've had about um so far we've had about half of those loon chicks come back to the eastern part of the state which is a very normal rate in the wild about 50 percent of loon chicks will ever make it back to the breeding areas um, a lot of loons will perish their their first couple of winters on the ocean as they're kind of acclimating feeding on their own so about 50 percent of chicks that make it back is about normal so we're, we're right on with the wild wild rates so we're very encouraged by that and we now have loon pairs actually forming in the eastern part of the state that were part of the translocation program. And we've actually had one pair nest, uh, hatch successfully, hatch, and fledge a chick. So so far, uh, very very successful.
15: Well, congratulations on that. So what what do loons do in the winter? They go to the ocean off the coast of the Cape? Is that is that right? That's,
10: yeah, that's right. Our, our birds here that breed in Massachusetts and throughout New England and New York typically typically will go to the coast of Maine down in the Cape Cod maybe as far as New Jersey and it's because our, our lakes freeze um, in the wintertime loons have to leave they need food of course they, they can't live on the frozen lake so they migrate to the ocean where there's no ice and there's lots of food for them to catch and so typically it really depends on the winter this has been a crazy winter here in Maine and as well as Western Massachusetts too. ice kind of came in late Things are starting to thaw early, so the timing of things is variable. But typically, right before the ice comes in in November, loons will migrate to the ocean, and then come back as the ice goes out, typically in May or so.
15: Um, one of the things that you were talking about was threats to loons, and that includes humans and the and the things that 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 humans do. And one of those threats include mercury contamination. And our second science word of the day. Is bioindicator loons are bioindicators of mercury and pollutants? Is that right?
10: That's, yeah, that's correct. They're they're one of the best actually for a freshwater ecosystem. Their their natural history allows them for that for that purpose. They they eat fish. They primarily eat fish. Um, they eat entirely aquatic organisms when they're on their lakes here in the summer. They're very territorial, so they hardly ever leave that lake in the summer. So, if you're able to catch that loon, collect a blood sample, which we do a lot, a blood and a feather sample, it can tell us how much mercury is accumulated or, or available on that particular water body or watershed. And it's, loons are now become a uh, US Environmental Agency and EPA bioindicator species because of all these reasons. Uh, they're, they're an ideal bioindicator, they accumulate mercury. A small fish is eaten by a bigger fish. A bigger fish is eaten by an even bigger fish. And then a loon will eat that bigger fish. So mercury bioaccumulates as it works up the food chain. And the loons are kind of sitting at the top of that food chain.
15: And mercury is a heavy metal, toxic and poisonous at at even uh, at any concentration, it seems like. Where does the mercury come from and are the loons dying from it?
10: know the mercury comes from a variety of areas it's a natural occurring element but if just like anything if you have too much of of something it, it it can be bad for you so for mercury it occurs naturally it's not harmful to us or wildlife but it becomes methylized so mercury in an aquatic system becomes methylized it goes through this transformation process and becomes methylmercury and that methylmercury is the stuff that's very deadly it it takes a really large concentrations of mercury to actually kill a species of wildlife, especially a loon. A loon that's a fish eating bird it ingests natural levels of mercury on the daily, so it's more tolerant of mercury burdens. So we're not we're not seeing levels that will actually kill a loon, but we are seeing levels of mercury in some areas of the northeast where loon productivity is decreasing. Eggs aren't hatching as as, as at the rate that they should be where loons aren't returning to the lake as frequently as they should be or living as long as they should be. So there's those kind of endpoints that we've identified for mercury and loons. And that's a lot cool. of it is atmospheric deposition from the Midwest and even actually Asia. Um, our Midwestern emissions are actually decreasing over the past decade in the United States and in North America, so that's that's a good sign. But we are still influenced even by uh, Asian um, deposition of the atmosphere.
15: And by emissions, I assume you mean uh, coal-fired plants, which we are working our best to get rid of. Congratulations, uh, Lucas, for the success of the program and keep up the good work. I had so many more questions to ask you about the Biodiversity Research Institute. We've been talking with Lucas Savoy. He's the director of Loon Programs at the Biodiversity Research Institute in Portland, Maine. And it was a wonderful conversation, except for when you trashed my Loon call. And that's really upsetting to me. And unlike the parent loons, I will never forgive you for that transgression.
2: Well, Brian, you know, uh, it is science and sensibility. You demonstrated no sensibility. Exactly. There was no way to distinguish between your owl impression and your loon impression. And they both sounded like a moose impression.
15: Uh, Buzz, that's why they call you loony. So.
2: There we uh, go. Now we have it. So We're, thank you, Lucas. Lucas,
15: uh, once again, Director of loon Programs at the Biodiversity Research Institute. Stick with us, and we will be right back.
2: Like a bird <laughs> on a wire, like a drunk in a midnight choir. I have tr- this is
0: Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A new law expanding access to public records related to police investigations went into effect in Massachusetts almost two years ago. Investigative reporter Dusty Christensen made requests to local police departments for all records related to police misconduct. So far, he's found that just about 3% of all civilian complaints filed in Holyoke resulted in any substantial findings or discipline for officers.
10: There's still a whole host of investigations they have not sent us. What they have sent us so far is just the times that civilians have complained and then the police department investigated those complaints.
8: Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia declined to comment on Dusty's story, but did speak with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP's Talk the Talk.
11: Without dismissing or trying to justify public concern, certainly there are things that I'm very much looking forward to improving at the police department so that we're making sure that we're de-escalating these concerns from happening as much as possible.
8: The City Council's Public Safety Committee will be presented with the final police audit report on March 6th to better address the shortcomings within the department. Northampton is the latest school district in the region to receive a threat of violence. Just after noon on Wednesday, the police department received a call threatening violence at the high school. Officers immediately responded to the school building, conducted an investigation, cleared the school of students and staff, and finally determined the threat was not credible. Javier Reyes could be the next chancellor at UMass Amherst. UMass President Marty Meehan says he's advising the board of trustees that Reyes is the man for the job. Trustees will meet Thursday to discuss the recommendation.
12: Increasing clouds this morning, and then some scattered rain showers developing after 4 o'clock this afternoon. Warm with a high of 60. Showers and drizzle tonight. Overnight lows of 40 to 46. Rain likely tomorrow morning. Scattered showers in the afternoon. A high of 56. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
0: It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to three, right here on WHMP. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. WHMP.
6: It might not seem like it to many consumers, but inflation continues to slow down. Prices went up last month, but at a slower rate than in December. Consumers continued to pay more for gasoline, putting a roof over their heads, and for food. Used cars and medical services cost less. A Harris poll conducted on behalf of Norton reveals that Gen Z and Millennials have concerningly relaxed attitudes about online stalking after a breakup. The survey also found 80 percent of these groups don't change passwords when a relationship comes to an end. Nissan is recalling 404,000 older model cars and trucks because an emblem on the driver's side airbag can detach during deployment. If that happens, the emblem could become a projectile, causing injury or death if it strikes an occupant. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're
0: listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
2: And we are back. It is time for Take 5, our weekly music segment with Ruth Griggs. Hi, Ruth.
17: Hi. Good, good day to you. Good
2: day to you. To you so and um, to
17: Bill and um, Dan here in the studio. And I am so thrilled to have one of my favorite vocalists of the Valley this here place in is, the studio.
2: Can you feel the talent that surrounds <laughs> oh, us right, right wow. now?
17: It's just bubbling up. <laughs> Ethel Lee is a, a jazz and a Motown and a blues. This woman can sing anything. And uh, Ethel came back into my mind when we had Dave on as a guest who runs the Amherst Jazz Orchestra. And he was telling us all about how Ethel sings in front of this huge jazz band orchestra. And uh, so I wanted to welcome her today. Thanks for being here, Ethel. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. So Ethel has an amazing history, in my opinion. Um, she lives in West Springfield and has been very active in that community for many years. Um, music has always been a part of your life. But interesting, professionally, uh, you have not always been been a singer. So tell us a little bit about your background, Ethel. It's so interesting.
7: Well, my background is varied and uh it's pretty interesting, I guess you would say. Well, I was a police officer for 28 years in West Springfield, and I was the first female and the first person of color and the only female for 11 years before we got a second female. As a matter of fact, she and I are still very close friends to this day. She's retired now also. But I say this, and and I find it almost impossible to believe that March 6th will be 20 years that I have been retired from the job of being a police officer. That blows my mind that I've been retired for almost that long. Yeah, Mm
17: -hmm. but you've been singing for a lot longer than that.
7: Oh, boy, I've been singing ever since I can remember, ever since I can remember. But now that I've retired... I can devote all of my time to it, which is, is wonderful, because I can go anywhere and all over the place. I was just in Rhode Island, uh, Middletown, Rhode Island, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm gonna be in Newport uh, the 22nd of March, and then I'm gonna be in Rhode Island again uh, the end of, of April, so I have a nice, you know, group of guys that I work with down there that, uh, it that's the wonderful thing about the music uh, business. You know, you, you run into the most amazing people and and you make fantastic friends and fans from from this business. Music is just an incredible thing. It's just wonderful.
17: And it, they become family. Oh, they do.
7: They absolutely do. Yeah. no so you question have, about. I, it.
17: I I was looking on your website. You have a very long extended family of musicians. Yes, <laughs> right, right, and yeah. and so and so, so. Tell us a little bit about um, you know where you got your inspiration from for your singing. I mean, you know, again, you can sing anything, and your range is amazing, but. Where did that inspiration come from?
7: Well, I've, we have always had music in our house uh, as a child. You know that that's always uh, a good thing to have all kinds of music in you. And and I've been listening to and and that has actually expanded. You know since I've I've uh, become an adult. But I started off listening to um, you know uh, I'll tell you one record that we had that <laughs> we <laughs> we played it to death and and I, and, and it was. Um, mm, uh, it, it'll, it'll come back to me in a minute, but we, we played that record until it just would not play anymore. <laughs> the just, grooves were it, so it deep. It was worn out, totally worn out. <laughs> but anyway, we, we had all kinds of music in the house, and I was always a Johnny Mathis fan, uh, Nancy Wilson, mm. Elvis Karma mm. McCrae. Uh you know. And then, of course, I, I love the blues and the rock and roll and all that kind of stuff, too, you know, for uh, You have
17: such a swing. You have such a sense of rhythm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you really do.
7: I love it. I absolutely love it.
17: So, so in terms of like the kinds of the kinds of gigs that you have now, you say you 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 know you're singing in in Rhode Island. I know you sing at the 350 Grill in mm-hmm. Springfield. You've had a 20-year career at at uh, Uno's in Springfield. This year
7: is going to be 24. years. 24 years. 24 right. years. Yes.
17: So, yes. so what what kind of what kind of ensembles and what kind of environments do you do you sing in? Tell us that kind of range. It's pretty. Varied, you know. Uh,
7: the The great thing is, I have to say, is I love the fact that I've um, established a, a a a rep a rapport with with people that I, I perform for, and um, they seem to really enjoy it. and And I, I I'm just blessed that 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 happens because I do some private gigs that people actually say every year, and and sometimes at the end that there's one one private gig that I do in in the month of September and it's always the same uh, uh, time at every year. At the end of the gig, they give me the date for the next year, and, and, and I'm always so appreciative of that and just so blown away that, you know, they book me that time for the next year. And it's just that I try to make I try to make people um, uh, feel comfortable, I try to make people happy, I try to do a good job and so I I, I think that that happens because of the fact that I continue to get the same bookings every year and one one house party that I do, the guy hired somebody else one year when I went to visit my mom when my mom was alive because that was my priority going to see and take care of my mom. And uh, he hired somebody else, and he said to me when I came back, he says, that guy was good, but says, I'm going to tell you right now, there will never be another house party at my house without Ethel Lee. (laughs) (laughs) So...
17: You know, let me let me just mention right now that that Ethel has a wonderful website, a very professional website, and the website is simply EthelLeeSings.com, EthelLeeSings.com, and you should go there to kind of see, you know, what her philosophy is, what her what her her, her gratitude. There's a lot of gratitude that's conveyed there. And it, if you it's wanna- a wonderful
2: website. I, I was just looking at it, Ethel Lee, and and I saw like a lot of great. I don't know why, female Mm -hmm. vocalists like Aretha. and Your father was a reverend. Yeah. You were were raised in Alabama. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. With that tradition, the Uh church tradition, the gospel tradition. What kind of influence does that still have on your singing?
7: Oh, amazing. My dad was one of the most incredible, amazing people. I mean, I have so much gratitude and so much love for that man. Unfortunately, he passed away... um, 10 days after his 75th birthday, mm. and I'm coming up to 75 in March. Oh, and yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's yeah. like, you know. Just uh, keep singing, Ethel. Yeah, Just keep yeah, singing. yeah, absolutely. So my dad was, and I'm going to tell you that the out of all the things that I love and appreciate and admire about my dad, my dad was the most easygoing, soft-spoken person ever, I can tell you in my lifetime. I can count the times on one hand I ever heard that man raise his voice. Ever. That's something.
2: And it it, it sounds like you were you were indeed yeah. fortunate to be raised by yep. him and your mom. But what about the influence on your music? What is it about that church environment
17: that so many female vocalists? I attribute? know, yeah. So I, many so many jazz musicians, uh, period. And right, right. yes, stop. Yes. Yeah.
7: I, I I can't explain it. I really can't. I, it's just something that you feel and something that I don't know. It's it just comes from. It's a spinoff from an I, I I don't I don't really know how to explain. Well,
17: it. you know, um, my husband was a jazz uh, pianist and composer and player, and you know, when when we had our two boys coming through church, mm-hmm. and he taught them how to you know play saxophone and and piano, etc. They played at church, mm-hmm. and and the point is is that church gave young children an opportunity to right. sing or to play, Mm -hmm. they welcomed it. To express themselves. Yes, yes. To express themselves and to be up in front of, uh, you know, quote-unquote an audience, which is the congregation. And, you know, there was a lot of warmth and, and, you know, inclusiveness for those children, and Mm -hmm. that was incredibly encouraging. And to this day, people remember either being in the choir as a child or wishing that children's choirs would come back, which is, you know, a little bit you know tough in, in this day and age mm-hmm. in in churches but right. so yeah so so um the the other thing that um I I know again that that you do which I find interesting is that you you sing so many different genres you know you 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 just you nail the jazz you sing in front of a big orchestra, but you also do Motown and blues and mm-hmm. like why why the variety where's where's your inspiration to sing that wide variety of of different kinds of music Well
7: there's so much to be you know uh, enjoyed from that music and and if you are um, one uh, well, I'm trying to think of the word I need to, to say for this. But if you if you just focus on just one particular genre, genre then you're going to be limited as to what you can do. And, and, and I can't tell you how many times people have said to me from the audience, says, what I love about you is you do. You have so many styles and so many things that you do. So you do something for everybody, and I like hearing that. I really like hearing that. And and I don't. I don't want to be bored myself, and I don't want to bore my audience. So I like to. You know, uh, they they're sometimes they're actually surprised whenever they say, "Wow, I didn't know you did that kind of stuff." You know, I never heard. You know, you do that before, and you did this, and you did. So I just I like to stay. I like to keep it fresh. I like to keep it interesting. And you know, I, like I say, I don't want people to be bored, and I, and I don't want to be bored myself. So,
17: well, if you if you want to before we go on break, if you want to hear Ethel Lee singing in front of the Amherst Jazz Orchestra, get yourself over to Union Station right here in Northampton on Tuesday.
7: Monday Monday,
17: excuse me. Monday, February Monday. 20th. Mm-hmm. Always the third right. Monday of right. the month. So coming up this Monday, February 20th, the Emerson Jazz Orchestra with none other than Ethel Lee is singing at 7:30. Mm-hmm. You can dine, you can wine, you right. can have your friends. There's a lot of yes. space there at Union Station. Mm-hmm. Come check it out and we will be right back with Ethel Lee.
0: Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it.
7: So this is Massachusetts' way of saying we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families,
17: and we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals.
0: 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP.
5: It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there but there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance and soon enough we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available and more importantly if you ever need help or have a claim you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000.
17: The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally
18: owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 and Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com.
14: Using WIC is easier than ever. You can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. Visit us at mass.gov/wic. Brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program.
16: I'm going down to the corner store. It sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era. Unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence, then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy. Your neighbor is the person behind the counter. And Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling. And like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom-and-pop shop, supporting the other mom-and-pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley. Coffee roasted in Northampton. Honey from Deerfield. Kombucha from Greenfield. And they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield, too. Greek olive oil. Italian pasta. German Riesling. Cooper's Corner. An old chestnut of a corner store. On the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
2: And we are back with Take Five uh, with Ruth Griggs and her incredible guest, talented guest, Ethel Lee.
17: And we're going to hear some of that talent in a minute um, on the radio. Uh, Ethel's going to sing a little a cappella for us, but we want to remind you that if you want to hear her live with a full jazz orchestra, which is a beautiful thing to witness and to listen to, go to Union Station. On Monday, February twenty, at seven thirty in the in the evening, bring your bring your your buds. You know, order order some dinner and some wine and whatever, and sit back and enjoy the sounds of Ethel Lee and the Amherst Jazz Orchestra. So here's a little tidbit of that voice for us right now.
7: Blue skies smiling at me. Nothing but blue skies do I see. Ooh, bluebirds singing a sweet song. Nothing but bluebirds all day long. Never saw the sun shining so bright. Never saw things going so right. Noticing the days hurrying by. When you in love, my, my, how they fly. Blue days, all of them gone. Nothing but blue skies. From now on, I was blue as blue as could be nothing but a cloudy day for me. Then good luck came knocking at my door. Skies were gray, but they're not gray anymore. Blue days all of them gone Nothing but blue skies From now on <laughs> oh. Wow!
17: You know, we don't have any any skies in here, but I think whatever is in here is now blue. And I just can't imagine
2: that when you you put an orchestra behind it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah.
17: Oh, that was beautiful. What fun, Ethel. Thank you. (laughs) What fun. So, you know, I just want to pause for just a second to say there's some other, a couple other really good things going on um, coming up. Um, that I want to just acknowledge, and that's that, as as you know, the Northampton Jazz Workshop um, is now happening over at the Drake in Amherst, and coming up on Tuesday, Samira, in honor of Fat Tuesday, because we're about to celebrate Lent starting on Wednesday. On Fat Tuesday, the last day of celebration is H- H- Hanif Nelson on trumpet, and Samira Evans doing their very very classic New Orleans Fat Tuesday nice. pull out all the stopper celebration. I think so I've that's been lucky enough to
2: see her like five times. Oh, nice. Yeah. she She's parades beautiful. in yeah. in full regalia. <laughs> it's an incredible scene she's, she's throwing beads it's yeah, like yeah. we're there in new orleans yeah it, she
17: really brings new orleans mm-hmm. right into western mass so that's at the no drake surprise. on tuesday starting at seven thirty, and then i also want to give a little shout out my son is a jazz pianist and a and a player and a composer he also s- performs for an, with a number of bands and on um on, on friday The 24th at Marigold in East Hampton is going to be a Talking Heads tribute band called Slippery People. Mm -hmm. that his bud, um, drummer Cade Parkin, is putting together. And uh, my son, Rob Fontana, will be on keys. And that's, uh, again, this Friday at the Marigold, uh, starting at 8 p.m. So that'll be a really fun dance, dance, danceable
2: band. Sounds fantastic. So
17: just wanted to do that little shout-out before we get back to Ethel Lee. Um, So... Let's Since you've brought some blue skies to us today, let's think about summertime, and where are we going to listen to you in the summertime, Ethel, every Sunday? Well, um, Pizzeria Uno's, which is down by the Basketball
7: Hall of Fame, right in front of the Hilton Garden Restaurant on the patio, is where I'll be performing on Sundays, Sundays from 6 to 9.45. Uh, it's a six-piece ensemble. I have five musicians behind me, and Two of those musicians have been with me for the entire 24 years that that you know I've been performing there. The others come along after, um, but you know different replacements and all that kind of thing. But we have fun. We have a lot of fun, and it's outdoors, uh, weather permitting, and it's it's just a wonderful venue. And, and you've and, got quite
17: the following. Oh, quite I lo- the following. I love.
7: I am so blessed. I'm. There's a group of guys that come. A few summers ago, it started raining. And of course, we have a canopy over us where we are on the bandstand, and they were sitting out. They took their umbrellas out and put their umbrellas up over their <laughs> <Yes>, <completely laughs> heads. I went over took a picture with my cell phone, I said, you guys are incredible.
17: <laughs> That's <laughs> devotion. It is. It really is. That's <laughs> devotion. I love it. You know, one of the things that was sort of fun about talking with Dave Sporning about is is the collaboration that you have with Dave Sporning, who, mm-hmm. again, leads the Amherst Jazz Orchestra. He's amazing. And talk to what, you know, he gave us his perspective mm-hmm. of what it's like to sit down with you and think about what songs you want to sing and what's going to work for the orchestra. And then he goes off and, and does the arrangements. Yeah. What's that like from your perspective to collaborate? with dave sporny on the music that you sing with the amherst jazz orchestra well
7: i gotta tell you dave sporny is one of the most amazing incredible people that and we've become very close friends i i I just you know he's such a blessing in my life and and he is so kind and so patient and and just just an incredible boss he really is i i i can't say enough about him but uh I I feel incredibly blessed because he could have asked anybody to be the vocalist in that band that are a lot more uh, into music than I am as far as probably could just, you know... uh, It's very challenging for me, and and he is very patient with me, and and I love it because it's just... uh, it's such a rush having that many musicians, you know, behind you and performing. I would but think
17: it would be terrifying, Ethel.
7: Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> that so too. tell us why it's a rush. I want to hear that, too. It, it, it's such a rush because it's just, you you almost can't believe it's, it's, like when he asked me, I couldn't believe that it was happening. It's like, you know, this, this has got to be a dream. I, I'm going to wake up and find that I'm dreaming. So it's just...
17: I <laughs> 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 it makes me speechless. <laughs> well, let me tell you, Ethel Lee is hardly speechless when she's <laughs> on the stage, standing in front of the Amherst Jazz Orchestra, singing her heart out like you just heard her sing Blue Skies. And again, we want to remind people as we close up today that come to the Amherst Jazz Orchestra on February 20, which is this Monday at Union Station, Pleasant Street in Northampton at 730, yes. uh, to hear her sing more of that tintillating, beautiful, flow. Uh, Flexible, lovely vibrato voice of of Ethel Lee. Thank Thanks. you so much for coming on he with us so today. You're so welcome. I appreciate you and evidence. I
2: just want to point out if people haven't heard the big band, the Amherst Big Band Orchestra, it is it's profoundly good.
7: It's amazing.
2: It's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. so for you to be fronting it, doubly amazing. We're Whoa. all just so lucky. Blessing,
7: blessing, 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 <laughs> <Yeah>. blessing.
16: <Well, laughs>
2: For those of you who have been listening this morning, thank you for spending some of your day with us. For those of you who are listening in the afternoon, coming up right after the news break, another full hour of talk to talk, including Professor Sylvia Rodriguez Vega, who will talk about family separation, the heartbreak of deportation, and her role as an artivist in displaying in her book, Kids' Art. Thank you so much for joining us.
7: Little baby, don't, 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 don't you dare cry. One of these mornings.
0: Mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits
16: brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care.
0: It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's
4: 11 o'clock.